was a father with his young boy standing outside of a storefront. His son was looking inside the storefront, ooing and eyeing over all the toys, thinking one day maybe these toys will be his. The father looks at his little son and says, son, I've got to go and do a little bit of business on down the street. I've got a few things I've got to take care of. And the father got in his car and left his son there at the storefront, believing that he'd only be gone for about an hour and that his son would be occupied with being able to just look in the storefront and see all of those toys. The father drove off about 30 minutes away to his job, did the few things he needed to do, got back in his car and began to drive back and blew out two tires. He couldn't get out and change his tire because he only had one spare and so he had to wait for a tow truck to come, tow his truck off to the place to fix his car and eventually get back to his son who was at the storefront about six hours later. This father worried immensely, concerned that his son would be gone or his son would be in tears or his son would be in so much fear. But needless to say, when the father pulled up to the storefront, there was his son standing there staring at the window. The father ran over to his son and grabbed his son and wrapped his arms around him and said, Son, I'm, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. Were, were you worried? Were you afraid? Were you scared? And the son said, No, Daddy. I was never afraid or never scared because I knew that you'd come back. You see, the father has told us he's coming back. He's told us that he's on his way. We don't know when. We don't know what's holding him up just yet. But we know that he's on his way because he's promised it and he's going to fulfill it. You see, in the book of Acts... The, uh, the disciples were understanding that Jesus was on his way back because he's going to proclaim it. But what they told or what Jesus told them before he left was he said, look, I want you to go and make disciples. I want you to go out into all the world and I want you to reach the lost and bring them in. I want you to go out there and fulfill this in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the other parts of the world. I want you to go out there with my power and be my witnesses. And the reason why, the reason why this should inspire you to do it is because, just know this, I'm coming back. I'm coming back. We need to be ready. Well, today we're going to talk about two discoveries about Jesus' final moments on earth. Two discoveries about Jesus' final moments on earth. If you have your Bibles open to Acts chapter 1, we're going to be looking at verses 9 through 11. We first begin with his ascension and current work, beginning in verse 9. It says, Now when he had spoken these things while they watched, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. Can you imagine what that day must have been? These disciples have been listening to the Lord preach. They've been listening to him teach. They've been commissioned by him. Now, for 40 days, Jesus has appeared to them. He's restored Peter. He's appeared to them, and he's eaten with them. He's appeared to them, and he walked with two of them on the road to Emmaus and discovered, helped them discover what he was intending to do. He's been with them, he's talked with them, and he has commissioned them, and he's told them, I want you to go out and be my disciples and make disciples, and guess what? I'm leaving. I'm leaving. Can you imagine up to this point, these 12 men, these 11, or actually 11 men at this time, were serving the Lord. They were following the Lord, and he's been with them this entire time, and in these 40 days, he's appeared off and on to them, and now he's telling them, I'm gone. I'm going to be gone for good. 
And so we come to this point and he leaves them. As he's speaking these things, they're watching and all of a sudden they see Jesus just rise up from the ground and go off into the clouds. He ascends right before their eyes. Can you imagine what they must be thinking? Wait a minute, Lord. Let's go. We'll go with you. Take us with you. What are you doing? And he's already told them what he wanted them to do. You see, have you ever wondered why God leaves Christians here in this world? It's because we still have a job to do. The moment we get saved, it'd be wonderful if the moment we gave our lives to Jesus, we went on to be with him. And we never experienced sin. We never experienced death. We never experienced problems. We never went through any of that. But that's not what God intended. God left us here because there are still sheep that he wants us to reach for his fold. There are still people he wants us to share the gospel with. Well, we know what we're called to do. But what is he doing? Have you ever thought about that? What is he doing right now? Well, I want you to see five things that he's doing presently. The first thing I want you to see is he has taken his seat. Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 3. Listen to this. He has taken his seat. Who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Let me tell you something. You don't take a seat until you're done, right? When you go out there and you do your work, you don't take a seat until it's over. You don't finally get to relax. And you think about this. Jesus had ascended after 40 days of going back and forth, of appearing before those disciples. He finally goes up into heaven and he sits down at the right hand of his father. Because his work is finished. He's paid for the sins of the world. He's made tribute for our sins. He has become the propitiation. And now he has justified us freely as we receive it through grace by faith that we might attain heaven and live eternally with him. It's done. The work is finished. Guess what? We have nothing more to do. We cannot add to salvation because Jesus has completed it all on the cross through the resurrection and now seated at the right hand of the Father. He's done it all. He's sitting down. Now you say, well, why is that important? Well, in Hebrews 10, 11, and 12, it shows us why it's important. When it says this, and every priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. Get that? They... The priests every day had to make sacrifices. In fact, if you ever read the book of Leviticus, you see a lot of things in there. They had to make daily sacrifices. They had to make extra sacrifices on the Sabbath. They had to make monthly sacrifices. They had to do sacrifices that they made for the feasts that they had. So they were constantly working. There seemed to be something constantly going on. But verse 12 of Hebrew 10 tells us something different. It says, but this man, talking about Jesus, this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God in other words there was no more need for sacrifices it was finished you remember his declaration on the cross right it is finished the work is complete salvation had been paid for you see anytime I hear preachers or I hear others talk about the things that we have to do in order to earn our salvation it burns me up because that's not salvation at all What you're basically saying is if you have to go to purgatory, Christ's work on the cross was not complete for you. If you're telling me that you have to be baptized and you're telling me that Christ's work on the cross was not complete for you. 
If you tell me that you have to pray a certain prayer, then you're telling me that Christ's work on the cross was not complete for you. You see, the truth of the matter is the Bible makes it very clear that it comes down to this and this alone. When we surrender to Jesus Christ and we give our lives to him, at that moment we are saved. We're saved. Why? Because it was already transfixed on the cross. Isn't it amazing that here we are 2,000 years later from the crucifixion and to know that 2,000 years ago he paid for all of your sins, past, present, and future. Every last one of those sins was paid for. He knew everything you would do, and he bore all of those sins on the cross. Whew, what a Savior. And he's seated. He has taken his seat. In Acts chapter 7, verse 55, it's interesting because Stephen is being stoned. And he said he looks up into heaven, and there is Christ standing at the right hand of the Father. You say, wait a minute, if he's seated, why is he standing? I want you to understand, he stands when he still has work to do. But he sits because he's redeemed mankind. He's standing there, he's still working. I want you to understand, just because he's taken his seat, it doesn't mean that he's finished with the job that he is doing. Number two, he's interceding and advocating for us. Interceding and advocating for us. In the book of Hebrews, it tells us this in Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 25. It says, Therefore he also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. He is always making intercession for us. To intercede means to go between. In other words, your prayers on your own cannot reach God Almighty. They can't. That's why we pray to Jesus. We pray to Jesus, and you say, well, wait a minute, aren't they the same? Well, the idea is simply this. It is through the blood of Jesus Christ that our prayers can enter the very throne room of God. It is in the name of Jesus Christ that we're called to pray and seek the face of God. It is through Jesus Christ that the veil has been torn so that we have access to God. But he intercedes for us. You understand there are times when you don't know how to pray. Am I right? The book of Romans tells us there are times we don't know how to pray. And in Romans 8, it says the Holy Spirit prays for us. He intercedes for us. But not only is he interceding, he is advocating for us. In 1 John, he tells us this in verses, uh, chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous you realize you're being accused constantly, right? There is an adversary that is accusing you before God constantly. Oh, they're not worthy. The truth is we're not. Oh, you see that? Did you see him just sin? Did you see what he was thinking? Did you see what they said about so-and-so? God, did you just see how they acted? Did you see how they just took something that wasn't theirs? Did you see how they hate each other? Did you see how they want reconcile with one another? Did you see how they won't forgive each other? Did you see those things? He is constantly going before the Father, pointing out every last one of your mistakes and sins. And the Son is seated there beside the Father. And he says, oh, I don't pay for that one. I don't pay for that one. Oh, hey, don't you remember, Satan, when I was on the cross? I done took care of that one, too. Man, I done covered all of it. He's advocating for us. 
Can you imagine that slippery serpent of old, that dragon who wants to take you down and tear you to pieces, who wants to destroy your life, who wants to destroy your relationship with God? He's up there accusing you constantly. And trust me, we give him plenty of ammunition, don't we? We give him plenty of ammunition to take before God and go, he's not worthy. She's not worthy. Don't listen to them. Don't talk to them. Don't help them. Don't be there for them. Don't walk by them. Don't comfort them. Don't encourage them. Don't do it. You don't need to do it. Don't you see what they're doing? They're nothing but stinking messes. And I can see the sun. Oh, man. Satan, you just don't realize. I take messes and I make miracles. I take dirty rotten scoundrels and I make saints I take those that are unrighteous and filthy and worthless and useless and people that nobody wants I take the poor and the destitute I take the lowly I take the the ones that are in such hardships and I take them and I make them mine don't you think Satan gets kind of tired of hearing that You say, well, how do you know this? Well, if you've ever read the book of Job, you know he has access to God and he accuses the saints of God. But we have an advocate. And you know what's amazing about this advocate is the way he continuously goes before God. But it's also because of his compassion and his mercy. Hebrews chapter 4, 14 to 16. Seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are. Listen to this part. Yet without sin. Oh, listen to this. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. You can go boldly to the throne of grace. Not the throne of judgment, which is what we deserve. Not the, not the throne of punishment, which is what we deserve. But the moment we go to God and we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. I'm telling you, he's still working. He's still advocating. He's still interceding. He's still praying for us. He's taking his seat. He's interceding and he's advocating Number three, he's preparing a place for us. John chapter 14, verses 2 and 3. In my Father's house are many mansions. Let me just stop for a second because I want to correct this interpretation. In my Father's house are many rooms. I don't want a mansion down the street. Some of you guys think that heaven is Beverly Hills. Right? You think we're going to walk down heaven on the golden streets by the crystal sea? You're hoping you have a lake house by the crystal sea, don't you? So you can go fishing all day. We have this mindset that it's dotted with all these beautiful mansions, and we can't wait to get there and see just what mansion God has made for us. No, 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 no. In my Father's house are many rooms. I'd rather have a room in the Father's house than a mansion down the street. My father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I'll come again and receive you to myself that where I am there you may be also. 
I'm going to prepare a place. You ever wonder what that means? Because I want you to understand something. Heaven is already complete. If you don't understand the analogy, you miss it. You almost have this mindset that heaven looks like Lebanon and there's construction spots going on all over the place. Right? God's having to build new roads for new homes. No. No, no, no. The place is prepared. It's an illustration here he wants you to understand. It's the illustration of the bride and the bridegroom. You realize that whenever they would get engaged in biblical times... The groom would go away and prepare a place for his bride. You couldn't marry that woman you want to marry unless you had a place to take her home to. So the groom would have to go off, and typically it'd be about a year's time. And guess what? During the engagement, they usually didn't see each other. You don't know why? Because he was busy building a home. He's busy taking care of making sure that he had a place so that one day he could go back and get his bride and take her home with him. You see, that's what he's telling you. He's preparing a place. I want you to understand how he's preparing a place. He's not preparing a place in the sense that he's building more rooms or he's adding more mansions to heaven. What he's doing is is he's preparing the people that are here that he's waiting on to come to know him. He's waiting on that last person to come to know him, to receive him as Lord and Savior, and then he's coming back. He's got more people he wants to bring in. You realize he's not back yet because he's still waiting on others. Is he waiting on you? Are you one of the ones he's waiting on? Aren't you glad he's waiting? Because if he came back, you don't know what you're in for. Or at least you don't want to know. Is he preparing a place for you? Because here's the thing. The groom is coming back. We know he's going to come in the clouds. And that's what Acts tells us. Just as you've seen him, and we're going to see it, he's going to come back. He saw him ascend. The fourth thing he's doing right now is he's the head of the church. You get that, right? He is head of the church. Ephesians 1, 22 and 23, and he put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. I want you to understand this illustration that he's using here. He's the head of We are the body. Can I tell you something? I believe sometimes the body is sick. Would you agree? The body is sick. It's the very things that Satan, our adversary, is pointing out to the God, the Father. Did you hear what they just said? That's a sickness. Gossip is. You realize that, right? You realize that not fixing relationships with people that you have ought with is sin, right? It's a sickness. You see, sickness will destroy the church. We, we're in the midst of, uh, I, I think we're coming out of the pandemic because you don't hear about it much anymore, do you? I think it obviously must be done. It's amazing how quickly it came and went. I'm not saying it didn't happen. Trust me, that's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is this. The moment people knew they were sick, they went to see a doctor, didn't they? They realized, hey, I need help. I need to get better. I need to be made well. And I need to make sure that I'm taken care of. Now, here's the thing. If you're a man, that's kind of the last thing on your mind, isn't it? Your wife will tell you a hundred times before you ever go see a doctor. I promise I'm guilty of it as well. Why? Why? Because we don't want to be told we're sick. 
We don't want to be told something's wrong with us. And I think that happens when it comes to sin sickness too, isn't it? When we've got sin in our heart, and we don't want nobody telling us what we've got wrong. We don't want somebody telling us that we've got sin in our life and that it's causing us problems. We don't want that because we don't want to feel guilt. But here's the thing. The, the good thing about feeling guilty is that the moment you feel guilty, you can repent. The moment you repent, you can be forgiven. The moment you're forgiven means it is cast as far as the east is from the west, and it won't be back, brought back up, and it's done for, and it's finished, and it was completed on the cross for you. He's the head of the church, and what that simply means is, guess what? This is his house. Isn't it interesting, you'll, you hear this illustration, you hear it talked about in Revelation chapter 3. Jesus said, behold, I stand at the door and knock. Can you imagine God having to knock on his own house to get in? And yet there are people who won't let him in? You see, this isn't our church. You get that, right? It's his. This isn't our church. And you know why? Because the building isn't the church. You are. And you're all his sheep, his children, if you've received him as Lord and Savior of your life. He's your head. He's your leader. Number five, he is extending grace. Ephesians 4, 7. But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of of Christ's gift. Isn't it amazing that he is still giving grace? I don't know if you're like me, but I don't feel like I deserve it. I fail him often, don't you? I mess up miserably. And yet the grace of God is still being extended into my life even though I fail. But you know what's amazing? If you're not a Christian in here, his grace is being extended to you as well. If you have not given your life to him, your grace, the grace is being extended to you as well. Because it's by faith through grace that you're saved. Not of your works, lest any man should boast. It can't come by you and you alone. You can't get there no matter how good you try. No matter how good you think you are. Even if you're better than half the people in this church, that will not get you to heaven. It is but by the grace of God. That's it. And he's still extending grace. He's still saving people. We saw one this morning as he was baptized as a public profession of something God did for him a couple of weeks ago. He's still extending grace. You see, he ascended and he is presently working. But I also want you to see from Acts chapter 1 and verses 10 and 11 his return and his future work. Look with me in Acts 1 verses 10 and 11. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven... As he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, who also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. I mean, you imagine. Disciples are just, where'd he go? Peter, did you see him? John, did, I saw him go behind that cloud, but do you think he's still going? Where'd he go? And all of a sudden, two angels appear. And they say, why are you looking up? What are you doing? 
You're wasting your time. Now, please understand, Jesus wants you to be ready, but it doesn't mean you need to put your head in the clouds. He is coming back in the clouds, and we're going to see when he comes back in the clouds, but it's not that we gaze up and keep looking up in the sky hoping that one day it's going to part, the trumpet's going to blast, and Jesus is going to be there ready to take us home. But we are to be ready. What are these future works that are coming? Well, I want you to understand the first future work that's coming, and we don't know it could be very, very soon, and that's called the rapture. You say, well, Brother John, that's not in the Bible. The word rapture is not in the Bible, but the proof is in the Bible. 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 16 and 17, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then those who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Let me ask you a question. What's the point in calling us up in the clouds if we ain't going to go with him? Why is he going to call us up and then bring us right back down? That's stupid. He's going to take us home for seven years. You say, well, he says we're going to be with him. We are. And then we're going to come back with him. But he's going to take us home. You say, well, I just, I just find that to be a little bit hard to understand. Well, that's okay. I'm going to help you out real quick. John 14 and verse 3. We just read this one earlier. He said this, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I'll come again and receive you to myself. If he's preparing a place to take you to, why is he not going to take you there? If that's not enough, we can go to the book of Revelation, and we can go to Revelation chapter 3 and verse 10, where he simply says this, Because you've kept my command to persevere, I will also keep you from the hour of trial, which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. You say, well, Brother John, that is to the faithful church, the church of Philadelphia. I dare you to go to Turkey and find the church of Philadelphia. It's not there any longer. What he's talking about is he's talking about to those who are faithful in Christ, those who are faithful faithful Christians, he is going to keep them from the hour of trial or the tribulational period, and he's going to take us home and get us out of this mess. He's going to take us home. You get that? We're going to step out one day, and guess what? One's going to be gone, and one's going to still be here. I hope you ain't one of the ones left here. I hope you're not on an airplane, and he takes the pilot and the co-pilot. I hope you're not in a car and somebody else driving and they're gone. I'm telling you, it's going to happen. It's just going to happen just like that in the blink of an eye. And we better be ready. The truth is, is we don't know when, but it's like the old hide and seek saying, ready or not. Because he's coming when he's ready. And when he comes, you better be ready. And here's the thing, if you're not ready... There's this period called the tribulation. You'll get seven years to get things right. But it ain't going to be fun. You see, during that period of time, there's going to be all these judgments poured out on this world. Seals are going to be broken. Trumpets are going to be blasted. Bowls are going to be poured out. And what will happen is there's going to be wars and pestilence and diseases. There's going to be a war breakout all over the world. People are going to be killing people. And within the first few months after the rapture, one quarter of the world will be gone. One quarter of the world's population will be dead. 
And then he's going to be sending fire from heaven. And it's going to burn up the grass and the trees and the greenery. It's going to poison the waters. And men will have a hard time drinking. He'll destroy much of the sea life. He'll destroy the boats. There will be darkness all over the sky. All of these plagues will be poured out. Revelation spells it out clearly. And the truth of the matter is that some people will stand there and say, well, that couldn't have been the rapture because I didn't go. No, you didn't go because you weren't ready. I'm telling you, half the church will still be here. I'm being nice. Billy Graham said three quarters will still be here. He's coming. Are you ready? After the rapture is Armageddon. Matthew 24 gives us a little bit of a description of this. Matthew 24, 29 to 31 says, Immediately after the tribulation, after those seven years, sun will be dark and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. And they'll see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven in power and great glory. And he'll send out his angels with a great sound of a trumpet. And they'll gather together as elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. We're going to look up, or they're going to look up, because I will be with him. And he's going to be on a white horse. And there's going to be this battle, according to Revelation 19, where for miles and miles and miles, there'll be an army that is going down there to destroy Israel. And our Jesus is going to come back on a white horse with all the saints and all the angels behind him. Now, I want you to understand, we're behind him not because we're going to fight. We're behind him because we just get to see. And when he comes down, it says he's going to slay them with the sword of his mouth. In other words, Jesus is going to speak. And if you've ever seen Raiders of the Lost Ark, that's what's going to happen. And they're going to kill over just like that. And it says the blood is going to be up to the bridle of the horse. He's going to destroy that army without any need of any help because that's who he is. He's going to defeat the enemy. And then it says, according to Zechariah, he's going to step down on the Mount of Olives. And when he steps down, he's going to split the ground. Now, it's funny because the Muslims believe he's coming back. Did you know that? There are more Muslims, I believe, that believe he's coming back than Christians. Christians. You want to know why? Because what they've done between the Eastern Gate And the Mount of Olives is they've planted a graveyard, believing that it will defile Jesus. And that he can't. Hadn't they realized Jesus touched lepers? It didn't defile them, he cleaned them. But you know what's really cool? Is underneath that graveyard, there's a a little stream. And when he splits the ground, when he comes and stands on it, it's gonna wash all that mess out anyway. And he's gonna walk. On the waters as he enters in to the eastern gate. And guess what? The Muslims are standing there and they got a couple guys with Uzis. Bing, 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 bing. Right? He's going to walk right in and he's going to slay them too. You see, he's coming to rule and reign 
And the Bible tells us, according to Revelation 20, he's going to reign for a thousand years. And during that period, he's going to draw his people. He's going to draw the people of Israel back into the land. And he's going to rule over that land. He's going to set his throne up in that kingdom time. And he's going to rule over the people. And then after that thousand-year period happens, then we come to the great white throne judgment. And I want you to understand, you don't want to be there for that. Because that's the judgment of those who do not know Jesus Christ. And there will be no hope for you at that point. None. You can plead, you can beg, you can try to barter, but you will stand before God Almighty and he will know your heart. He will know the truth about you. He will know whether you lied when you claimed to be a Christian. He'll know whether he was truly Lord of your life. I promise you, you cannot deceive him. And you will stand before him. And you may declare, just like Jesus said in Matthew 7, Lord, Lord, didn't we do this for you? And didn't we do that for you? And he's going to say, depart from me, for I never knew you, because your name is not in the Lamb's book of life. I'm here to tell you, it's going to be a lot of people surprised. You say, why are they going to be surprised, John? They're going to be surprised because they're going to think that their paltry life lived for Christ was what was going to save them. They're going to think that their little prayer they prayed is what saved them, even though they never devoted themselves to Jesus. They're going to think that going to church was going to gain them entrance into heaven, going to get them a ticket, but it's not going to do it. They're going to hold up a baptismal certificate and say, didn't I get baptized in your name? But the truth was, you never really were immersed in the things of God. You see, we can play the game with the Lord, but the Lord's not playing games. And you can fool man, but you can't fool God. And you see, after this judgment happens, he's going to create a new heavens and a new earth. A lot of people say, why is he going to do that? Because he's going to create a place where there's never been sin. He's going to create a new world where it is no longer groaning because there'll no longer be sin, death, or any problems ever to pursue in the life of those who believe in Jesus Christ. We'll never experience another problem. Are you ready? Paul wanted his people to be ready. In fact, in the book of Thessalonians, he really wanted them to be ready. Three times he says it this way, 1 Thessalonians 2.19. For what is our hope or joy or crown of rejoicing? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at his coming? Chapter 3 in verse 13, he says, So that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints chapter 5 verse 23 now may the god of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit soul and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our lord jesus christ he's coming are you ready you see you ask the question what do you mean are you ready well first off are you ready because you are sold out to jesus you see if you don't want to live for him here why would you want to live with him forever? Oh, well, Brother John, you just don't realize we got so many things going on. Those are just excuses. The truth is, is whether you have surrendered all. Well, man, I'm so much better than Brother Terry. I mean, don't you see me? I'm out there serving. I'm out there. Let me tell you something. Terry ain't your judge. Terry's not your standard. 
I love the man, but he's neither one of those. Jesus is. Jesus is. Are you ready? Because truth be known, you already know in your heart whether you're his or not. Maybe you've been fooling yourself for a while. I'm telling you, I fooled myself for 13 years believing I was a Christian. And then God got a hold of me and said, man, you ain't been living for me. What are you talking about? You've played the game. You prayed the prayer. You went to church. You did all of those things. You went through the motions, but you ain't mine. And man, when he told me that, I knew I better get things right. Are you ready? Now, if you are ready, are you helping others get ready? You see, the whole purpose in him coming back is to give you time to help others get ready. You see, there was a family that was packing up to go on vacation. As they were packing up, ready to go on vacation, the mama yells upstairs, The kids, do you have everything you need? You got your toothbrushes? You got your hair products? You got your underwear? Yeah, mom, of course we do. Leave us alone. We've already packed everything. Well, mom stays down and she finishes packing her bag. She finishes it up. She closes it up. She's ready to go. She goes upstairs anyways to check on the kids. She goes into her son's room and she opens his bag. Son, you only have three pair of underwear. You realize we're going for a week, right? Yeah, mom. Mom grabs some more underwear and puts it in the bag. Son, where's your toothbrush? I couldn't find it, Mom. She goes in the bathroom. It's right here on the counter, son. Puts it in his bag. She goes to her daughter's room to check her bag. She finally finishes her son's bag. She goes into her daughter's room, checks the bag. Honey, you know we're going to the beach every day for seven days. Why is there only one swimsuit in here? I can't find none of my swimsuits. You put them somewhere and I can't find them. I don't know what you did with my swimsuits. They're somewhere, but they're not here. Mom goes and opens up a drawer and, well, here they are. Here's every one of them. Packs her bag. Honey, where's your conditioner for your hair? Mom, I just thought I'd use yours. Puts it in the bag and packs it up. Zips up the bags. Finally, all the bags are packed. You see, mom was concerned enough for her kids to make sure they needed or had everything they needed when they went on vacation. How many of you Christians are concerned enough about your lost family members and friends and co-workers and neighbors that they're ready to go to? Because I believe there's going to be a day we're going to find out who's there and who's not. If you're ready, are you helping others get ready? It's not a, I got my ticket, let's go. It's, I got my ticket, who else needs one? Will you come with me? Will you come with me? I got a ticket for you. Brother David's got a ticket for you. Brother Troy has a ticket for you. Brother Chris has a ticket for you. Brother Brandon has a ticket for you. We got plenty of tickets to spare. We want you to go with us. Are you ready? Are you ready? Are you helping others get ready? You see, here's the thing. I want you all to go with me. I don't want any of you left behind.
Especially, I don't want my family left behind. I don't want my family that lives in North Carolina left behind. I don't want my friends left behind. I don't want my neighbors left behind. That's why I ask you to be praying for your neighbors. I love my neighbors. I don't even know half of them yet. I want my coworkers to go to heaven with me. I want everybody to go. And you know what? There's room. Won't you just look at the person beside of you and just ask them one simple question? Are you ready? Are you ready?